The following is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. Welcome once again, wrestling fans, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories, available at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family. I am your host, Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, and we are got a very interesting show for you, for you today. We are talking the formation of a very integral company in the history of wrestling. This edition of Classic Wrestling Memories is devoted to the formation of Capital Wrestling Corporation. And that may not be a name that's familiar to a lot of more modern families, but the long story short, uh, you know, spoiler alert, this is the company that eventually morphed into WWE. But we are talking way, way back, many years before even it was called the World Wrestling Federation. And of course, I don't have to do this alone. I do have my tag team partner and co-host in Classic Wrestling Memories, uh, recently celebrated his birthday at the Asylum, uh, Mr. Uh-huh. Jonathan Bullock, Crazy Train. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, I'm, I'm a year older, but I don't know if I'm a, if I'm any wiser. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I woke up this morning, and my head was stuffed up, and my ears were hurting, so I don't know if I'm fighting a cold or if it's just fall allergies, because um, the fall has finally kind of decided to come to the south after all the hurricanes blew through. But they just added an extra Allegra to my uh, meds during the med run here at the asylum. And when we were watching football during recreation time, I had a few extra jalapenos on my nachos. And maybe I won't be so sound and so stuffed up when I talk to y'all. So let's hope. <laughs> but if I do, I apologize. I'm, 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 I'm fighting it. But I'm here for you. Talking some of the stuff I love. Old-timey wrestling. As stated, we are talking Capital Wrestling Corporation, which was one of the major stories to come out of wrestling since the formation of the NWA. And I I think we'll do a episode on the formation of the NWA in in the future, but we're going to talk those first 10 years or so when they were the NWA territory. Uh, We'll probably end our talk with the formation of the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, but mainly we'll talk the first decade of the promotion. And to kick things off, let's 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 talk the state of wrestling in 1953 when Capital was formed. This was before the birth of rock and roll. Elvis Presley was 18 years old, was still about three years removed from stepping in into the studio for the first time. This is before the AWA. This was the year Hank Williams Sr. passed. The NWA was still new. I mean, we're we're, we're talking five years NWA. old. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say, well, 1948, but it was the governing body of pro wrestling at the time. I mean, it, it, that, that's a fair thing to say, right? Yep. Wrestling had already had its scandals at this point. Uh, you know, they had Jack Pfeiffer give that tell-all. And, you know, a lot of the a lot of the, the wrestling, especially in the bigger cities like Los Angeles and New York, were still completely governed by, um, you know, athletic commissions. And it was – kayfabe was totally – in play and there were federal investigations just you know a few years prior to the formation of the nwa where guys if you go back and look at the transcripts they lied under oath because that's how hard they t- that's how seriously they took kayfabe <laughs> you know and um but anyway and we'll probably talk about jack pfeiffer in long form at some point because he's a very colorful and interesting character in the history of wrestling as well um or pfeffer excuse me i think is the correct pronunciation but nonetheless yeah this was a territory the nwa um, and that was what essentially brought the NWA about was some of these these things that had happened in the 30s and 40s, which we covered a little bit during uh, episode three, uh, the uh, gold dust or uh, the gold dust trio. Mm-hmm. Um, so and you will hear us refer back to that episode some, I think, because some of this ties into that, don't you think, Seth? Right. Absolutely. Because Capital was formed by Jess McMahon. That's the father of Vincent J. McMahon and the grandfather of. Vincent Kennedy McMahon, the Vince McMahon that everybody knows today, and Toots Mott, who was instrumental in the re, the kind of the rebranding of wrestling in the in the twenties and thirties. And yeah, check check out Volume Three, the Gold Dust Trio, at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com for more on that. But uh, it was Jess McMahon who also promoted boxing and uh, a lot of other sports, if I recall correctly. That mm-hmm. uh, he he and Toots 
had this this business arrangement, and it was that territory, it was that Northeast Territory for the NWA that they started booking, and Capital Wrestling was formed, and uh, unfortunately, for the McMahon family's uh, sake, just passed away the following year. He, if I recall correctly, he was still relatively a young man. I, I, not not young mm-hmm. like, like like a... Uh, a whippersnapper. I'm saying young. He he was middle aged. He wasn't that much older right. than us, quite frankly. And, and, and let's be honest. If I remember, I believe it was a heart attack that, that took him. Uh, this was you know 1953. Um, medicine was not what it, what it is today. So it was not unusual in that time period to see individuals pass in their 40s or 50s or early 60s of like heart attacks or strokes. Medicine wasn't as good. Uh, we didn't know smoking was bad for you. Our diet was not as good. Granted. Not less, a lot more exercise back then. We didn't have the sedentary lives we have now with computers and whatnot. But nonetheless, diet and other habits weren't as good. Medicine wasn't as good, so it wasn't that unusual, I guess. Right. This, anyway. as far as TV goes, this was the the, the golden years of Idol of Lucy. I, uh, I actually have uh, an infatuation with fifties television. I, I really do. Uh-huh. And I've seen some of the soap operas and stuff that that aired back in the day, and they depict doctors smoking. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> so. exactly. I mean, you know, I, it was such a big deal. Then my mother, my mother would tell stories of they were the first family with the television in their neighborhood in High Point, North Carolina, which is not a, a large town, but not a small town. If you've ever bought high end furniture, you probably bought it from High Point or Thomasville. They're kind of the furniture capitals of the world. Uh, but anyway, nonetheless, you know, this was like 1956, 1957 when they got a TV and the entire block would come over like to watch the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday nights because it was such right. a novel thing, you know, in, in this era we're talking about. It was, you know, not like, you know, most of us now have, what, about four TVs in, in our house at least at minimum. <laughs> right. It's like the closest thing a modern audience could compare it to. And, and really, it's it's less modern than what I'm about to mention. But since we're talking wrestling and wrestling memories, when all your friends would come over to watch the, the wrestling pay-per-view. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's probably the closest very way much we novelty, could, yeah. Mm-hmm. But as far as capital goes, uh, like we said before, the NWA was formed in 1948, so about five years before. Capital was legitimately part of the National Wrestling Alliance for approximately 10 years, and it represented the Northeast. Uh, New York, New Jersey, Baltimore, maybe Philly or Pittsburgh. Philly and Pittsburgh, yeah. It's what was referred to as the Northeast Triangle. I I forget who actually uh, used that term regularly, but that, that was kind of that area that was the capital uh, territory, right? Exactly. And you bring up an interesting point when you lay out the cities there. Um, I think even fans that are, even listeners who are fans of of, of old-timey wrestling, but not this old, so to speak, but maybe like more 70s, 80s, when they hear Baltimore and they hear D.C., they think the Crockett territory and Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Mm -hmm. They became Crockett towns, but at this point in time, that's how far south that the Northeast Territory dipped was all the way into Baltimore. That was why it was called Capital, because D.C. was one of their big cities. So, you know, um, it makes sense to me, right? <laughs> it's right. the half of our country. They were, um, and, and they had, I mean, if you think about it, you have the Spectrum in Philadelphia. You have the old Boston Gardens in Boston. You have the old Madison Square Garden in New York. You've got, I can't remember where they ran in D.C. You have the old Baltimore Arena. Those are some of the largest buildings in the country. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty big territory with a lot of people in it, much more so than – I mean, like Calgary was huge land size-wise. If you refer to our, our, our episode with Dan the Dragon Wilson where we talk about Memphis wrestling in the 70s, Tennessee was a huge geographical territory, but they didn't have nearly the number of people. You know, So it was it was different territory, but it was a member of the NWA. And uh, Vince, Vince – you know, Jay McMahon was highly – respected and regarded by the other promoters. He was, I'm sure most of our listeners have at one time or another have heard stories about the NWA board and the meetings they would have to decide who the touring world champ was. And they've heard that there were always a handful of guys, depending on what era, were the major power players on that board. Uh, in later times, it would be guys like Eddie Graham and Fritz Von Erich. And I believe uh, um, Jim Barnett uh, fits yes, that, that bill yes, too. Yeah. Jim Barnett was a, was a major player. Vincent, McMahon was a major player. He was one of the most respected. And I'm not saying guys like, you know, the Fullers and the Welches in the Knoxville Territory or, you know, Stu in, in, in Calgary. I'm not saying they weren't respected. They were. They just didn't have the political pull 
of a Vincent McMahon or an Eddie Graham. I, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. That was actually the very next line in my notes here, you know, as far as the show format was uh, Vince and Toots had a lot of stroke in the NWA. They, they had a lot of respect. Mm. And if I recall correctly, uh, th- this is flash forwarding to after uh, what we're going to conclude with, but going into the 70s and such, if they had a, a rift, and this is long after Capital left the NWA to uh, form Worldwide Wrestling Federation, if the NWA board of directors were split on a decision, Vince Sr. got the call, and Vince Sr. got mm-hmm. the deciding vote. So yes, you know, yes. It, so long after Capital left and formed the WWWF, Vince was still on call for important decisions when it came to the NWA, and I think that really yes. speaks volumes for the character of Vincent J. McMahon. Right. Uh, that of course that uh, now famous promo that Ric Flair cut on the very last Nitro when. He brought that up, and for history's sake, Vince, when I was when I was voted to be the world champion the first time, your father was the deciding vote. That was a shoot. That was a shoot. Mm-hmm. Half Jim Junior Crockett Junior had gotten about half the board to side with him. The other half had their own interests at heart and weren't ready to back Flair yet. I know that seems crazy to to a lot of modern listeners. What they didn't want to back Flair. Well, Flair was an unknown at that point, but obviously Vince saw some Vince's fire saw and, and did. He voted for Flair. So. We're talking, this is 1981, so we're talking 20 years later, and he's still got that kind of pull with the board. Amazing, huh? Right, absolutely. Now, as far as the early years of Capital, uh, Antonio Rocca was one of their featured performers, and I, I can also add, as a comic geek, Antonio Rocca has the distinction of not only being the first wrestler to be heavily promoted by the McMahons, he's also one of the few wrestlers, at least at that time, to be featured in a comic book. Because there was a comic that depicted him having a match with Superman, which doesn't make yes. any sense, but <laughs> you know. Well, but 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 if you think about it, the reason why it was chosen, where all where were all the where were all and still to this day, where was DC Comics based out of? New York City. Mm-hmm. So for the writers and 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 and, and artists that did, made comic books, when they went to see wrestling matches or turned on their as we've talked about the territories, right? Or they turned on their television to watch wrestling, what did they see? Capital wrestling. When they decided to do that storyline with Superman, who are they going to put in there? The top baby face. Just makes sense. I guess the conundrum that I have is it's it's two baby faces. You know, Antonio Rocca was a baby face. And really, quite frankly, it's it's the establishment that has gone through the generations really into the the, the current WWE, which is pushing the baby faces. You know, Rocca w- was was a dragon slayer. Uh, most of their baby well, faces. Was not a big guy. Was not a big guy. Right, but uh, you you go through the years, uh, you know. Um, we'll, we'll get to Bruno. He was a dragon slayer. Uh, you know, Pedro Morales, Hulk Hogan, Bob, uh, Bob, Bob Backlund, Bob Backlund. Yeah, and and even Warrior modern, Savage, Rock. modern examples. Yeah, John Cena. You know, uh, Shawn Michaels, Brett. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, and, it's the prototype for that territory's champ, isn't it? Right, right, absolutely. And and Rocca had NWA title matches with Luthez. Uh, you really can't tell the story of the history of WWE without mentioning Antonio Rocca. I mean, he's in the WWE Hall of Fame for that reason. He was the first McMahon prodigy. He was the first McMahon-promoted Dragon Slayer. I mean, I, I think that's a fair thing to say. I, I think of some other things that will become more evident as we talk about the history. He, he also, like you said, he's laying the template. He is an ethnic attraction. He is, you know, Italian, uh, who grew up in Argentina. So he also appeals to the the Latino market, and that was heavily part of the promoting of him. Um, makes sense in a city like New York that has large pockets of of ethnic uh, uh, communities. Uh, being from a large city yourself, as a Chicago, you're not uh, that uh, unfamiliar with that type of vibe. I mean, there are still pockets of Irish Americans and Italian Americans and Polish Americans in in Chicago. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. You're talking to uh, somebody who was born in a city that had the uh, two generations of Mayor Dailies, and they, they were very right. rich in their Irish history. Right. I mean, and that's that's not just a big city thing. You, you get down here in the south, the little small town I'm from, Greenville, you know, we're a mid-sized town. We have a large, large Greek community. They have a huge Greek festival every spring. We have the largest uh, Greek Orthodox cathedral west or east of the Mississippi in this little town. We have a large Vietnamese population. Um, 
you get up into into the western North Carolina mountains and the eastern Tennessee mountains, they have some of the largest Highland games outside of Scotland in the world because of so many Scotch Irish that settled that part of the country. Back, I mean, so it. it I think ethnicity, uh, not so much today, but back then was a very much a part of America, but especially in large cities, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a- absolutely. Now, as far as these early days that we're talking about, this uh, would have been during the reigns of Luthez, his first National Wrestling Alliance mm-hmm. t- title reign. Now, he there, there was an NWA before that, was a National Wrestling Association, if I recall correctly. And that was the one that was tied in with the, what I referred to earlier with the, the athletic commissions. They were the promoters were still trying to play nice when they just said, you know, to heck with this, and that's when they formed the the National Wrestling Alliance in '48. They said, we'll control right. ourselves. Right, right. Yeah. and 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 uh, I, I I think it was Thez that unified that, those, that those damn belts. Government oversight they just didn't want, you know. <laughs> right, right. But I think that those titles were. I, I want to say they were unified. I, I could be wrong, but I think Thez's yeah, first what, what title reign yeah, unified them. Yeah, what essentially had happened was my understanding is. When you had Ed Stranger or Lewis, like we said, we can refer back to episode three, volume three, for those trio to, to hear about Ed the Strangler Lewis. He had kind of unified the title at that point because he was such a good shooter. If you didn't want to do business, he would do business for you, so to speak, you know. But then when 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 the Gold Dust Trio split up in the late thirties, late to mid thirties, the world title started to splinter again, you know. And this guy's laying claim, and this remember, remember, it's it, wrestling's a work, ladies and gentlemen. So it's. The idea of, of, of people getting conned and screwed, it should not come as a shock to anyone. Luthez was was a shooter in the mold of Ed the Strangler Lewis. He had the ability to go around and tell, no, the board, you're going to play, you're going to play the way the board wants you to play. And if not, I'm going to make you play. Mm-hmm. So not many people stepped up, if you know what I mean. So he, he was he was definitely in the process of unifying. And at this point, in 53, he had pretty much unified it. He had any of these little straggling little, which is why if you look at the wrestling history books, just, and I'm assuming a lot of our listeners probably have or will at some point if they're listening to this podcast, that is why you will often see in old archives and record books on title histories, world title Toronto version or Atlanta version or whatever. Mm, I'm, I'm looking at the these, Wikipedia right now. <laughs> there, there are all those schisms there, you know, and, and, and Lou Thez was was the guy who was going to make make all those unified. And, and, you know, from a promoting standpoint, if you're a board of, of, of uh, promoters like that who are wanting to have one champion represent you to go around to all these individual members, you need that. You can't have one person not wanting to play ball, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but going through some of these early NWA title reigns, just to kind of set the stage, uh, you know, we had Orville Brown, Luthez, uh, Whipper Billy Watson, who I think also held that, uh, previous NWA title, the National Wrestling Association mm-hmm. title. Right. Had Dick uh, Hutton won his title at this point? He, uh, yes, yes. He won it in 57 in, in Canada. Uh, again, we're, we're going to bring up Canada in, in the future as well because there, there, there's uh, an integral point of history uh, for capital and WWF that, that ties into Canada, and we'll, we'll, we'll get yeah, to that can, in can, Yeah, I don't think you can underscore the, the um, importance of the entire country of Canada and all five of their of their territories in the NWA with what we have in wrestling now. They're very important. Agreed. And Pat O'Connor beat Dick Hutton. And then this is really where we're, we're kind of getting to, uh, which is in June 30th, 1961 in Chicago, which I'm assuming was probably a Comiskey Park. The old Comiskey Park. Right, right. Because I, I have very fresh memories of Comiskey Park being torn down uh, not, not, uh, about 20, 20, 30 years ago. But anyway, yeah, June 30th, 1961, uh, Buddy Rogers in Chicago defeats Pat O'Connor for the NWA title. Now, there was a disputed title match in 1962 on August 2nd where Bruno Sammartino defeated Rogers in, once again, Toronto. But uh, Buddy, and this is, uh, again, so typical of the Buddy Rogers type heel. He claimed to be wrestling with an injury. And mm. of course, the lawful good baby face is just going to be like, oh, well, if he's injured, then my victory is tainted, blah, blah, blah. So right. Bruno actually did not accept in storyline the NWA title. So let it be known, folks, here in, in, in history, Bruno Sammartino could have laid claim to being the NWA world champion. And this right. is uh, approximately a year before his 
now recognized WWE title reign, you know, the, the, the worldwide wrestling federation, which we'll get to in a minute. And this is all coming kind of to an apex, kind of, kind of coming to a head as far as where things were molded uh, in the next couple of years. I mean, do you have any, any knowledge as far as that uh, Buddy Rogers uh, Bruno match in 1962? No, no, no. I don't know anything that much about it, except it's probably the same things you have read. I know that the 61 match you referred to when Buddy Rogers won it from Pat O'Connor, uh, and it stood for a long time. That was the largest gate adjusted for inflation and largest crowd for a live wrestling event in North America for a long time. It's available on YouTube. Um, I would I'd Google it, folks. It's 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 a obviously it's 1961. The style is different, but there are still extremely entertaining parts of that match that even a modern wrestling fan could can appreciate. I'm sure you've seen it and would agree. Right, right. And now was this the kind? I wouldn't say the formation, but this is kind of where. Buddy coined that phrase. Uh, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. That was the post match promo. That was right, that famous right. promo came from after he had won. And, and you know th- that being said, be that cocky, arrogant heel. He's just won by the skin of his teeth. And over you know the long time and respected you know he that point I think Pat O'Connor been the champion for about a year. You know, which was not uh, that unusual in that time period. Right, right. But, I, uh, uh, Wikipedia shows his Pat O'Connor's reign is nine hundred and three days. So we're talking. About two and a half years. Right. So, but he was very well-respected champion. He was a good-looking guy. He was a legit – you could tell he was an like, – like you like to say, Seth, he looks like he could win a fight, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. He was a New Zealander, so he had a bit of, a, of a, an exotic, uh, you know, uh, accent to his voice, um, which, you know, it is what it is. That's kind of appealing to some women, you know, and, and some men. So, yeah, Pat O'Connor, and, and to, be, to beat him, uh, who looks like – what Luthez had been, what Oklahoma Dick Hutton was, those lists of champions you had listed before that, these are all your meat and potato kind of guys. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, my knowledge of Dick Hutton was that he was a an, an amazing athlete and a great uh, amateur wrestler and, and pro wrestler. He just kind of lacked that it factor as far as drawing yeah, money. No but still, still he, he had a year-and-a-half title run before Pat O'Connor did. Right. And so these are... You know, uh, these are the guys, like I said, the Luthezes, the Oklahoma Dick Huttons, the Pat O'Connors. These are your champions of the 50s. Um, we refer back to Antino Rocca. You can see even this early in the Northeast, it's more about the flash and the sizzle. Everywhere else in the NWA, they're wanting these kind of guys we just listed that look like they can win a fight with the legitimate amateur background, very much like Vern Gagne, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it was, it was right. in that right. mold as well. And it's interesting that you mention. Uh, Vern Gagne, because in 1959, when Pat O'Connor beat Dick Hutton, uh, he also had a match with Vern, uh, I want to say it was 1960, uh, and that's really where Pat O'Connor was declared the first AWA world champion. Uh, Do I I have my history correct there? That that, that sounds correct to me, and then it wasn't long after that, of course, Vern beat him, and Vern was the, the man in that promotion for a long time. So, right. <clears throat> but, but what I think what, what the listeners are seeing is, um, <clears throat> to kind of surmise it, this is like we've talked about before. You had your own little individual territory that you ran your own television on with your local stars, and you would get, the, you would get as a promoter in that territory the world traveling world champion at some point, whether it's Dick Hutton or Pat O'Connor or whoever, you know, Buddy Rogers. And you, your job was when you got him for however long you had him, was to get him on your televisions, uh, build him up to a match against one of your top guys, with the, with the you know ostensibly being the the purpose being to draw a bigger house, and it usually did. You know, having the NWA World Champion meant something. It was special. You didn't see him all the time, and that was obviously what you referred to with the Bruno match in '62. That was what that was. I'm sure. You know, they got the NWA Champion, and Toots and 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 Vince said, "Hey, okay, Bruno's our top guy. Let's." Let's, you know, build it up. And that was the blow off. That was the finish. It was a way for Buddy Rogers to get out of there with the belt and still the champion. And their local hero who's staying behind can still be a hero to the local fans. Because they're thinking, oh, man, our guy had a beat. I hate the term tweener, but the NWA traveling champion at that time was at best a tweener or just a straight up heel. Because you were having to go into every territory. And even if the guy that they put up against you was a heel locally, when their guy was fighting the champion, they were going to be a babyface regardless. 
I, I remember one of the times here down here we got we got the champion when I want to say it was Harley Race, you know, and uh, the, the guy they built up for that time that Harley was in here was Ole Anderson. Now we've spoke at length about how reviled Ole Anderson was. He actually got a little <laughs> bit of a baby face <laughs> love, and that kind of led to the eventual baby face turn that we've referred to before, and we'll go over it long form at some point. That turn on Thunderbolt Patterson and Dusty was just, are you kidding me? Oh, wow. But anyway. So, so <laughs> only just yelled at Harley to get off his lawn? Something like that, you know. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, this reviled heel that we hated, you know, one half of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew is all of a sudden, he's a baby face just because he's fighting the world champion. You're going to pull for your local guy, right? Right, you know? absolutely, yeah. So <laughs> that's the thing. and and, and um, But as a promoter, the, the, yeah, they're paying attention, but they're also the businessmen. They're thinking about drawing a crowd and making money. So they're paying close attention. All these territorial promoters are to all these different champions have which one's actually drawn when he's come into our territory. Who's been a bigger draw? You can understand that as a business guy, can't you, Seth? Mm-hmm. So when we start to talk about, we talked a little bit about Vern. Now we're to like early 60s. Buddy's having his run. There's talk about taking the belt off of Buddy and giving it back to Luthez. What does right. your research tell you on how that sat with with Toots Bonson and Vince Vincent J McMahon? Yeah, my understanding is that Vince Senior and Toots uh, liked Buddy. Uh, they kept booking him in the Northeast because again, it goes back to he was drawing and Lou was not. But that raised the ire of the rest of the NWA because mm-hmm. hey, hey, you know you're, you're not booking the champion. But Vince and Toots' side of things is well, we, you know, we're trying to make money here, right. so. Uh, on January 24th, 1963, which I think is almost to the day, 21 years before Hogan won his first title, just for what it's worth. Uh, but yeah, it was, I know it was very close in, in actual like day of the month. Yeah. Right. Uh, buddy lost the NWA title to Luthez in Toronto. Again, bringing, th- th- this is why we, we teased talking about Canada before. Uh, but the public story is McMahon and Toots did not recognize that loss because it was a one-fall match. Back in those days, two out of three falls, uh, was that, that's how title matches were decided. Now That was, that was the standard, yeah. yeah. And, and, now, and this is funny because it, doesn't, it hasn't happened yet because at that time, Toronto was its own territory run by the Tunnies, Frank and Jack. They mm-hmm. ran Buffalo, New York up to Toronto. This is another NWA territory that this match is happening in, yet they're disputing it. Anyways, go ahead. <laughs> and yes, uh, for you 80s kids that are listening to this, we just mentioned Jack Tunney. Yes, that Jack Tunney. This was... Yeah, he, wasn't, he wasn't just a figurehead. He actually did have a history of professional wrestling. <laughs> I don't know if all our listeners knew that. <laughs> right, right. Because I, I didn't until probably the last 15 years or so. But now, as, as far as this title loss uh, goes and... Vince Sr. and Toots uh, going off and forming the WWF. Uh, was this because they didn't book it? Would you think it was egos? Or uh, obviously, you're a uh, d- definitive voice money. here. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I, a lot of what I'm, what, a lot of, of my understanding of this split is coming directly from the fabulous Moolah. Okay. I obviously wasn't around when this happened. She was, you know, and of course, she was a darling of both Vince Jr. and Sr. Um, and was was a big draw for both of them for a very long time. But, you know, Lillian, for those of you who don't know, Fabius Mula, God rest her soul, her real name was Lillian Ellison, was Fabius Mula. And so a lot of us that knew her well, we, we called her Lil or Lillian because she asked us to. Um, but anyway, regardless, I just wanted to clear that up for our listeners. Um, Lillian would say, you know, it was all about, you know, she joke. it is about Mula, it's about the money. And she goes, look, Luthes was great, but... Luthez didn't draw in New York like Buddy Rogers did, hun. and it was that simple, you know. And that's why, that's why Vince did what he did, and that's coming from a woman who was around at that time. So take that for what it's worth, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So it, it was about this time, January 1963, when Capital broke from the NWA and they rebranded themselves the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. I think the mindset plays back into our earlier discussion about all the way back to Raka. We like we said he was a little more flashy. He wasn't the meat and potatoes wrestler as, as we referred to, you know, Hutton and O'Connor and these guys as. Um, I think you're seeing even this far back, WWF, WWE, WWWF, going all the way back to Capital in '53. It's a bigger, bigger cities, faster paced. They've always been a little bit more about the sizzle 
than they have about the, the meat and potatoes, the steak. Um, I think Buddy versus Lou Thez is a great example of that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, because uh, we, we talked about it before, about how Buddy Rogers, he had the, the bleached hair, he had the robes, he called himself the nature boy, um, and you right. kind of see where Ric Flair got his inspiration from. He won the title, Nick, Nick couldn't Bachwinkle. happen. <laughs> right. You know, he won the title, couldn't I mean, happen to a nicer guy. You know, it, mm-hmm. he talked that smack that made you want to see him get smacked. Sure, and, and I can tell you as a fan in this territory, part of the reason Flair got accepted as the nature boy was Jim Crockett, or, well, George Scott as the booker for Jim Crockett, bringing an older Buddy Rogers in in the 70s and uh, basically having a, uh, I mean, he was past his prime, running a feud with a young Ric Flair to who the true nature boy was. And that that some of that footage without without from a handheld camera without commentary is now available on the on the WWE Network. A match just down the road for me here in Spartanburg, South Carolina, which was the blow off for the few when Flair finally made Buddy Rogers tap to his figure four, which was also Buddy Rogers' finishing move. You know, um, mm-hmm. but I mean that's that's how how flamboyant. In fact, Flair tells a great story. I've heard him tell it in person. He talks about it in his first book, "To Be the Man." When that whole feud started, he had idolized Buddy Rogers as a wrestling fan, but had never met the man. And when he finally got to meet him, it was because he was going to have work this angle with him. And he walked and he said he looked like a million bucks. He had every piece of his suit was was perfect. And he had this huge diamond pinky ring on and the necklace. You know, the hair was every hair was in place. You, you get the visual I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And he walked up and said, wow, wow, Mr. Rogers, that's a that's a beautiful ring. And he said. He goes, you know what, kid? He goes, there's only one diamond in this room. It ain't on my finger. You're looking at it. That's, that's, that's <laughs> what Rogers was, you know? <laughs> and and, and yeah, that, that's a great story. But, I mean, that's that's who Buddy Rogers was. And that's the kind of star that – and I'm not trying to rag on New York City. It just is what it is. That's what they were used to, and that's what they wanted to see. They didn't want to see Luthez. And this is no disrespect to Luthez. Luthez was a good-looking guy. You and me have talked about here on this podcast – when you see those old pictures of Luthes from the forties and fifties, he was a good looking young guy who, who who looked good in a suit, didn't he? You know, and he was the mm-hmm. kind of guy, as we talk about, could go on those shows like Good Morning America and not be an embarrassment to the wrestling business. You know, very right. articulate, very very educated uh, and astute, um, but not arrogant like like a Buddy Rogers or a Dick Bockwinkel or a Ric Flair. You know, <laughs> and and he, his wrestling style, he did high spots. But it was more, you know, ground and pound, very MMA almost, you know. And Buddy Rogers, he didn't do anything flashy or was a high flyer like Rocca, but he had that swagger to him, and that and he would strut and do the over accentuate, you know, you know, the kind of stuff Flair would do, like the fair flop. Was Flair got some of it from, so that just appealed to that crowd more. And and so anyway, I, I'll get off that. I, I think the, the listeners get the idea of what we're talking about. But in storyline, Rogers won the original worldwide wrestling federation title which is now recognized as the wwe title on smackdown which is currently held this is by, just their ww that's just a heavyweight title right 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 it, it's not the universal title it's it's the just the wwe title which is currently held by hall but anyway uh, classic wrestling Jinder mahal right <laughs> yeah Jinder mahal right <laughs> classic wrestling memories here folks okay um, once again it's a business one billion people i'll leave it at that <laughs> <laughs> right but in storyline rogers won the wwf title in a tournament in rio de janeiro which of course that tournament never actually existed because there weren't and they had like another internet. tournament just a few years later when pat patterson was the first intercontinental champion <laughs> right anyway. yeah oh, I, I, boy you people in rio, rio de janeiro i mean you, you get all these wrestling you know history to make you yeah. twice <laughs> so. well you know i've always laughed about that but if you think about it you know it's probably the one city you can think of in this hemisphere that people can buy you actually had a wrestling match, but no, you had to worry about any of your local people having been there and see it, so they can't dispute right. it. <laughs> right, exactly. Because if you hear about a tournament in another country, you think, oh, well, there's only one, two, or three of our guys there, and and hey, yeah, because if you won. just said my, if you just said like Miami, Eddie Graham would have been like, not in my territory, <laughs> 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 or L.A. LaBelle's would have been like, not here, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so. It, for for those that that didn't know, uh, the tournaments in Rio de Janeiro they didn't exist. Uh, it was just storyline. But in April of 1963, Buddy Rogers is recognized as the Worldwide Wrestling Federation champion and thus the original WWE champion. 
And of course that that become that becomes historic also in the fact that he comes becomes legitimately the first man to have been an NWA and a WWF world champion. Right. Exactly. Now I've seen documentaries that said that Buddy was not drawing as champion and that was the move to go with Bruno but cuz cuz Bruno beat Buddy in May of 1963, you know, literally like a month later, but there's a lot mm-hmm. of worked history going on here. Now, the biggest yeah. thing and uh, this is what I need to get out of the way right away. Buddy legitimately had a heart attack at, at the yes. age of 42. That's why Bruno back won to that, so Back quickly. to that style of living and, hell, and medicine, and, you know, not being yeah. what it is today. And make no bones about it. Buddy Rogers lived the gimmick. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that, you know. Right. I, I think we can say without getting too morbid here, when you're getting paid hundreds if not thousands of dollars in 1963 – and there's probably easy access to all kinds of recreational goodies. A lot of the ladies are going to pay you attention. What's that going to lead to? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. Buddy, Rod- Buddy Rogers loved his cigars, and he and he liked his bourbon, from what I understand. And I think that's that's. Hey, I like bourbon and cigars too, but it's not good for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. And when you can afford the best, yeah, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. But oh, anyway. Bruno beat Buddy, like I said, 1963. And correct me if I'm wrong, but Vince Senior was not high on Bruno at the time. And and uh, again, a year before, Bruno uh, laid claim to being NWA champion a year before. But it was right. Toots Month that actually swayed Vince Senior to run with Bruno. Yeah. Now, my understanding, once again, this is coming from from Lillian from Fabius Mula, uh, and you heard if you listened to our second episode with Susan Green about work in the territories in the 70s, Bruno was not the highest on the ladies. <laughs> um, so take that for what it's worth coming from a, a, a huge female star like the fabulous Mula. Bruno, um, Bruno didn't have, at least in McMahon's opinion, and I can take, take it for what it's worth because she is a worker and she's jaded because she's a woman and Bruno was not the biggest fan of women's wrestling. Um, he didn't have the charisma that, that, that he wanted in his champion. You know, that over the top, uh, just like Buddy Rogers had. But like you had said, Buddy, Buddy was not drawing as well as I think they expected. And there are historians who will speculate that some of that had to do with the effectiveness of the early days of the NWA establishing itself as such a, you know, us putting a stamp on, on a, if you're the NWA champion, that's the be all end all. So you're having to retrain a group of fans that this isn't the NWA champion, but he's our world champion. That was part of why Buddy wasn't drawing too. Right, you know? right. I, I think so. When when you create a title and suddenly say, okay, this guy was the NWA champion, but, but now, now he's the champion of our show. Well, right. what does that say for the NWA title? You know, you you you. Right. I, I think, and a lot of I hate to use the term casual fans, although they. It exist in that time, but it's like they even existed then. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. I, I think in the eyes of a lot of fans, that was saying it, it was taking him down a couple steps because you're mm-hmm. saying he's not the world champion that you've known for the last few years. He's, he's a, a regional champion. champion. Right, right, exactly. Even though it says world champion, which is also part of the reason why I think they chose Rio de Janeiro. It, it gives you a sense of being global, you know, and world. Mm-hmm. Um, but make no mistake about it. Whether whether Buddy wasn't drawing, whether it was Bruno didn't have enough, Bruno wasn't as high, Vince wasn't as high on Bruno as, as I know Toots was. Um, Luthez wasn't drawn in New York either. He didn't draw, He drew especially when you compare it to like what he drew. You can't say St. Louis because Thez was from St. Louis, so he was a hometown hero right, there. He right, drew, right, he, right, right, right. I was, I was about to say uh, Thez was probably the, drew his best money around where I live, you know, around the Midwest. Right. Right, because he was a big way. He was a St. Louis guy. But he drew big in the South, here in the Carolinas, Florida. He drew well in Japan as a gaijin, you know. He drew well for Stu in Calgary. He drew well in, in California. He drew well in Texas. And this is before Fritz owned Texas. You know, this this is back when it was uh, 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 literal, you know, was still running Texas, all of Texas. And, and Bosch was running Houston, you know. So he drew everywhere but New York, okay. So whether... Whether you can talk all you want about, you know, outside of the heart attack, why Buddy was the guy Vince wanted to go to and whether Buddy was drawn or not. He was outdrawing Luthes because Luthes just wasn't drawn in New York. Just wasn't. He was too meat and potatoes and just boring to that fan base. And that's hard when that's essentially the biggest market in the world. 
I mean, the only other market that was an NWA market that probably rivaled that would be what Los Angeles and Tokyo. Yep. Yeah, something like because Mexico City was its own little world. I mean, none of the lucha none of the lucha promotions had had joined the NWA at that point, and the only lucha promotion at that time would have been CMLL, which actually predates the NWA. It's so old, you know. Um, but they were doing their own little thing down there, and you have World of Sport in in Britain at this point who had. Who they were doing their own thing too. I mean, they would do talent exchanges with the NWA, but they didn't need to. They were essentially running the entire British Isles like they were running the NWA over here. You know, it was, it was small pocket territories with one main office. Uh, so, so London's out of the picture. Mexico City's out of the picture. New York City's the biggest in in, in the NWA's you know reach, other than like LA or Tokyo. So it's kind of hard when you look at that that you want to put the, the belt on a guy who doesn't draw on your biggest market. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it, and that was one of the questions I was going to put forth. Uh, and this is the third point I'm, I, I was going to make as far as a uh, buddy's run is mm-hmm. that capital was constantly booking him as the NWA champion for years. And now he stopped drawing. And I think I answered my own question a little bit before that saying, well, he's the WWF champion, not the NWA champion. I, I think that right. really did play a factor. Right. I mean, it was it was just so much being worked on, 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 on like you said, the histories. And, and you remember, once again, this is before, this is we brought up. This is the early burgeoning days of television. So forget even cable TV. And the magazines are not what they were that us that grew up in the 80s had where you could you could somewhat follow the other territories. You'd be a few months behind, but you could start follow the major like for myself where I'm getting, you know, I'm getting Crockett Mid-Atlantic TV. I'm getting Georgia TV and I'm getting, you know, syndicated events television. But I could still keep up with like Memphis and Calgary and places like that, Japan, just by reading the aftermags. You mm-hmm. know, they right. didn't even have that back then. So right. when you're hearing second and third hand whispers from the guy four rows behind you when you go to your local wrestling show, it, it's very convoluted for the fans. And you hear me talk about all the time: wrestling should be is best when it's kept simple, right? Right. A- absolutely. Yeah. People don't go to wrestling to think; <laughs> they go to wrestling to escape. Right. To kind of put this into perspective, how news would have been as far as wrestling goes if you didn't attend the shows, we're talking the kid riding his bike home from school or maybe he's walking and he uh, he or she uh, just goes into the local candy shop, gets a soda, maybe picks up the newspaper and that's where he's going to get his news from. You know, A lot of the uh, the news that you did get back then was from the quote unquote hardcore fans. And the the fan clubs were really big back then, and I'm sure at some point we'll probably do a a a, a whole episode on fan clubs. J.J. Uh, Dillon, the Hall of Fame manager of the Four Horsemen, got into the business because he became the president of the Johnny Valentine fan club. There you go, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Jim Cornette was a was a president of the Louisville chapter of I want to say the Jackie Fargo fan club. There you go, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, you see, so fan clubs was about the, and the fan clubs obviously were completely uh, stilted and skewed from the person that they were fans of. <laughs> you know, everything was putting that wrestler in in, in a positive. Um, it's a fan club, right? <laughs> it's not meant to be uh, 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 fair and, and unbiased. <laughs> right, right. It, it's a business. <laughs> right, right. And so um, getting news was tough. And it just, I, I, I think back, I think to, I think and wonder what it would be like to be a fan that time. And it would be so confusing because all these things we're talking about, you know, and we all know that wrestling is a big work. So that makes it even more, more confusing. One of the best uh, summaries of the wrestling business comes from Tony Schiavone on his podcast, What Happened When? And I'll, I'll sanitize it a bit where he says, it's a freaking work. Just whenever you talk <laughs> about wrestling, it's a freaking work. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever interacted with wrestlers uh, on a long term, and and I'm Seth, you can back me up on this because you've interacted with me now for several years. How often have you heard come out of my mouth? That's just a work. Mm-hmm. It, it, we're jaded, folks. <laughs> we, <laughs> we think everything's a work. You know, we think everything's a work. We're we're constantly working ourselves and each other, so we assume everybody else is doing it too. <laughs> and, that, and believe me, it was way worse back then than it is now. So. <laughs> Yeah, because uh, yeah. people aren't aren't going on Twitter thanking their opponents for their great match. <laughs> but I, you just want me to re- you just want me to slap somebody tonight, yes. don't you? <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Breathe in. Classic, classic wrestling <laughs> memories. Classic wrestling memories. Okay. <laughs> I, I I get a lot at work. 
why do you get so bent out of shape about wrestling? Because I have a passion for it. I said, you know, I, 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 you don't have CTE and, and, um, you know, cirrhotic arthritis and some of the other long-term health issues I have now, uh, when you do something and you didn't really become famous at it or make a whole lot of money at it, if you don't have a passion for it, you know, I'm just saying, mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, back to, back to cap, you know, so there's a lot of things going in, but like you said, unfortunately, right or wrong, buddy wasn't drawn, but Lou wasn't drawn at all. And they go ahead and split. They put the belt on on Buddy Rogers, and then boom, he has a heart attack. So that completely changes everything. Because how can you have a, a champion, uh, you know, that's going to tour even if it's just your territory, who physically can't perform now? Mm-hmm. And that's where the ascension of Bruno comes in. And what was the date of that match where Bruno beat him? It wasn't long into the into the formation. Yeah, it was May of 1963. I don't think I have the exact date in front of me, mm-hmm. but it, it was a, approximately a month into Buddy's reign. And really, I think that probably did more for Bruno uh, than because my understanding, and because we talked about this in pre-show, was Bruno was going to have a year or two chase before he finally slayed the dragon and became the world champion. But I think it could be argued that doing a quick match like that mm-hmm. probably did more for Bruno than maybe that year-long chase did. And, and again, it, it, the, just my opinion. And I'm kind of talking out of my butt here, but I'm just an amateur historian. I really think the ascension of Bruno can be compared to the ascension of Hogan in the early 80s. Because mm-hmm. if, if if memory serves, Hogan won, and that wasn't in under a minute, but when Hogan beat the Iron Sheik, if I recall correctly. Uh, it, Four or five it, minutes? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't a very long match at all. It, it was actually the rematch that, that uh, uh, w- was a much longer match. But well, even a, even a more current, I think, example of that would be Goldberg. Mm-hmm. He had a short run where the fans had established him, uh, you know, and, and he was on this streak, and the crowd was really behind him, and he was hot as you know, he was white hot, just like Hogan was, just like Bruno was at, at this point. We're talking about they're all white hot, and they have less than than marathon matches with the established star champion, and that makes him just that much more popular. Because when he beat Hogan on that Nitro, it was like what four minutes. Right, yeah, it was basically a squash match. You know, yeah, I mean, and Hogan, just, I mean, it wasn't just Hogan, Hogan I mean, losing I mean, a squash he, match. He beat up all the NWO to win. I mean, he took everybody out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then it was you know Jackhammer Spear one two three, and the crowd went nuts. Mm-hmm. Now, my understanding to get back to Bruno and, and, and Buddy, I've never seen the match. I don't know if film of it exists. I have seen stills, obviously because of Buddy's weakened state due to his heart attack. Uh, you, if you don't respect Buddy Rogers for anything, respect him for this. He had enough professionalism in him, in his weakened state, recovering from a heart attack, to put on his boots and tights and go out there and do the honors for Bruno and drop the belt the right way. You know, it was an ugly match and it was over quickly where he tapped to a bear hug. But I mean, obviously, Buddy was extremely limited in what he could do because of his condition. And if you go back and watch that earlier match I talked to you about uh, from Chicago where he beat uh, Pat O'Connor for the, the NWA title. That's about a 20-something minute match. You could tell that Buddy been his, before the heart attack could go. You know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. But once again, I think you're right. I think, it, I think because of the brevity of the match and the decisiveness of the match, through no fault of Buddy, just bad luck, it made Bruno that much bigger. You know? Right. Agreed. Uh, any other uh, memories as far as uh, – or, or thoughts as far as Capital or the, the early – Worldwide Wrestling Federation no, just, days. You know, like, I, th- I think we, we, we talked about it. It, it. It's amazing to me when you look at where we are now, and they're the only major, you, you know, all due respect to Impact and Lucha Underground and ROH, they're the only major wrestling promotion still standing. We agree, right? Yes. That what was essentially an NWA territory, because of cash and creative, one of the two, like JR always says, this was a creative difference between the promoter of that territory and the rest of the board splits and it becomes the winner of the battle and the the template that they use going all the way back to 1953 has successfully been the template they used through all their changes and incarnations to today to be that one company left standing now i will give a caveat to this and i always give this caveat and this is not a this is not a slam on vince mcmahon jr or senior or jess mcmahon great businessmen probably the greatest wrestling promoters of all time I think sometimes they get a little too much credit for being these innovators and groundbreakers and the last man standing because they didn't always beat their opponents. They just outlasted them because 
sometimes their opponents were just so bad and such bad business they beat themselves. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, we could probably do an entire show. We could probably do several shows on the Monday Night War, quite frankly, where it's like mm-hmm. you, you watch Raw and you see a bunch of run-ins and disqualifications and you turn and at the same time you would turn over to Nitro and you just see bad matches, <laughs> you know, right. with, I mean, with, but with nothing WCW. happening. WCW is a company that, that really just shot itself in the foot. The AWA was a company that shot itself in the foot. ECW was a company that shot itself in the foot. World Class was a territory and company that shot, shot itself in the foot. You know, these are all other territories that were rising at, at one point or another, and some of them even were competing with WWF at some points. All of them, if as much if not more so, beat themselves than Vince beat them. I, I think you can agree on that. Agreed, and you've just set up like four future episodes of Classic Wrestling. <laughs> ECW, AWA, World Class in the early 80s, and then there's probably a three-part episode in and of itself of the, of the Turner buyout of Crockett. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because though the, the history is as worked as much as it is as the one we're talking here, um, there is more truth that has gotten out about what happened there than <laughs> what got out when, when Vince Sr. left the NWA, but you know. Right. Um, but once once again, like you said, I think it's important to where we are today in wrestling to understand. We brought up earlier that Vince Sr. was so well respected, even though he had withdrawn from the NWA, he was still respected. Um, and that he even, you know, years later would help like break the tie and for Flair to get his first world title. Part of the reason why that that was, was even though he called himself the World Wrestling Worldwide Wrestling Federation. He still only ran the Northeast. He still kept that gentleman's handshake agreement about, I won't run in your territory if you don't run in mine. And uh, Vince Sr. always, always um, respected that. And to kind of make up for the fact he had left, I think he, partly because it was beneficial to him, but also because I think he felt a little bit of uh, still a camaraderie and and kinship with these other promoters because they were his peers, you know, and his friends, his business associates. He would bring their top guys into New York you know, and uh, Bill Watts tells a great story about that when he had a, a, a what was supposed to be a one month run, but it, but he drew so well, it wound up being a three month run with Bruno on top in the sixties, mm-hmm. or sorry, in the seventies. I was a, actually going to bring the story up myself, but but go ahead. But uh, but yeah, well, if you want to tell, it, you tell it. Go ahead. Well, my my understanding is uh, Bill Watts had this agreement because Bill Watts was also doing promoting uh, in in his territory and the Oklahoma right. regions. And he was going to go up and he was going to have a feud with Bruno. And long story short, and I'll, I'll let you elaborate because you probably know more about it than I do, that the agreement went so well and uh, Watts drew more than what was expected that he wound up having a several-month run with Bruno. And mm-hmm. there was even talk of him even having the title. Now, granted, that's coming from Watts, so... You, Take that you know, for what it's worth. worth yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a worker saying, oh, I, I could have had the title, you know, but... Uh, no, no, no disrespect. No, none of us, uh, none of us, including myself, have ever said anything like that to a Mark. No offense. Yeah. And and I, I love Bill Watts, so so that that's all tongue in cheek that I just said there. But anyway, you remember, there's three ways to get messages out: telephone, telegraph, or telewrestler. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, he had an extended run, which of course kept him away from home for the uh, uh, promotion that he was uh, part of, and for a quarter at, of the year for three months. Right, right. And as a payback or as gratitude, Vince Sr. booked Andre the Giant because Vince Sr. was Andre's booking agent. If you wanted to book Andre, you had to go through Vince Sr. Uh, Vince Sr. let uh, Watts have Andre for a couple extra shows down in Oklahoma, and it turned out to be a Mm win-win. He said, as far as an in-ring performer... He made more money in that three-month run running those big, those big, those big buildings we were talking about, like Madison Square Garden and Boston Garden Spectrum, against Bruno on top, than he made his an entire year in ring in his own territory where he was the top star. And then you double that with the fact that the loss of him was filled in by Andre going down there. So he's up there in New York making money in the ring with Bruno, more money than he'd make in a calendar year doing the same thing in his own territory. And the houses are up with him gone, the top guy gone, because they brought Andre in in his place. So he's making money coming and going. That, that's a pretty good deal for Bill Watts now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> and and, and once, once again, we, we, we've said before, uh, Susan talked about it. 
Um, we've, we've, I've heard a lot of others talk about it. Uh, Mike Moodyham brought this up. We talked about him on the first episode. Back then, those magazines were so important, and the New York guys got more magazine coverage. Just like we said about DC Comics, they were based in New York. Getting yourself in New York or getting yourself in those magazines back then was the key to being a star everywhere. Bruno San Martino has even said in his own induction into the Hall of Fame of, 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 of Vince's Hall of Fame, the WWE Hall of Fame, if it wasn't for the, the Bill After magazine covers and Madison Square Garden, he never would have would have would have would have got would have drawn in Tokyo. But the fans of Japan knew he was because of that. So that was the trade-off, you know. Of course, when Vince bought his father out, and that will be another episode for another time, we'll go into long form. Um, that gentleman's agreement of not going into other people's territories kind of ended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so that's that's where the, the the wars that most of our listeners are familiar with came out of that. But for you know a twenty some year period there, it was essentially a, a former NWA territory that was his own company, but still respected that. And you can go back on the network now and go to the archives and look at the stuff from the sixties and seventies. Vince also wasn't senior, was not opposed to bringing in Harley Race as the NWA champion and wrestling in a Madison Square Garden show. Absolutely, know? I mean there, and he was, there he was, was a second uh, from the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and th- there was a few. Well, I, I think it was one match here and there where it was Harley versus Bob Backlund in the late seventies. And it was two out of three falls. And of course Harley would win one, Bob would win one. And then they do some sort of draw in in the third fall, which to the, to the modern fan seems cheap, but it's just like, you have to remember how storytelling was at that point. It was pretty common booking uh, sense that if you're going to have this big match back in the day, you'd have it go to a draw and probably have it where, each side could say, "Well, our guy should have won," and sure, you know, you, know, you could probably do the same thing a few years later. Yeah, and it wasn't just Harley. I mean, Harley, of course, had an interest in the Kansas City territory. They probably got Andre out of that, you know. <laughs> but they did a similar thing with Backlund uh, and Tommy Rich when he was the top draw down in Georgia, you know, where you know Bob came down and worked him in the Omni, which of course was also a big market, big building in Atlanta, and you know, and they were they were draws. They're always. T- that one was a really tough one because Tommy and Bob were both baby faces, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but that was, I think, a way of Vince Sr. still kind of trying to, like I said, the other promoters, whether you're talking to Jim Barnett or Nanny Graham or Crockett, you know, Big Jim or Jim Jr., these were his peers. These were his business associates, Fritz, all these guys. He respected them. And his son, not so much. Uh, and it wasn't that I think Vince Jr. didn't respect these other guys. Um, he didn't, I don't know if he respected Jim Crockett Jr. Um, and you've brought up many times, Vince Sr. absolutely fawned over how, how nice Big Jim Crockett was, Sr. Right, you know? right. I've even heard uh, Vince McMahon, you know, Vince Jr., uh, say that Big Jim was regarded by his father. And he, he said, and I, I don't think uh, McMahon knew, or, you know, Vince Jr. knew Big Jim very much, but he said he was a good man. My dad talked about him fondly seemed to be a good promoter and just a, a good man and, and that's on actual WWE programming it's on the rise and fall of right. wcw special that they have I, I think you can still see that on the wwe network yeah. but you know so i think that, that that's the mentality that that vince senior had um and it's it's kind of a unique thing obviously it was only a 20 year run before things you know changed <laughs> only and, a 20 year um, run only 20 year run <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, in a, in a business that has an over a hundred over a hundred years, as we've talked, we've gone pretty far back—not all the way back, but we've gone back some. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it is kind of amazing, especially when you think about it in today's. It's just—it's the kind of thing that's unfathomable, I think, to the modern fan. You know, that the the country split up into these territories, and that all of them essentially work together except for two: Minneapolis and New York, and even they have an agreement with these other ones. You know, so it, it it's kind of fascinating and. It seems insignificant until you pull back and look at the bigger picture, like you said, and realize they're the last one standing. Wrestling is not what it is today, if not for Luthez not drawing in New York City, essentially. I guess it's the moral of the story, isn't it? <laughs> right, right, absolutely. I think that's probably the uh, the main thing people can take away from this episode as we kind of wind and, and, down and, here. And let it be known, ladies and gentlemen, and wrestling fans. That is the closest you will ever hear to us say anything bad about Luthez on this particular podcast. 
because we both love mm-hmm. Luthes. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we could probably do an entire episode. We could probably do multiple episodes on Luthes. Oh, on Luthes, yes. <laughs> I, I told you there's, there's, a, there's a few key moments in my wrestling career that I'm extremely proud of. If you go to my Facebook page, that's Jonathan P. Bullock, uh, uh, or it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, facebook.com slash crazytrainjb, um, you'll see some pictures from my wrestling career. There's one there with Luthes. That is one of my proudest moments in my wrestling career. Not a match, not an angle, not, you know, going overseas. It was me just just meeting Luthes and him accepting me as a peer. That was an honor. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't the, think we could... I, 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 did I ever tell you that story? I think it merits telling right now since he's so integral to this mm-hmm. this broadcast. I, I think you've told it to me off off uh, mic, but but tell it again. But I think our listeners people. would enjoy it, don't you? I'll, I'll go ahead and mm-hmm. share it real briefly before we wrap up. It was the fifty first NWA anniversary show, which happened to be in Charlotte that year, uh, and it was a two part event. This was in the early days of what we know now are pretty common with these you know these fan conventions and meet and greets and whatnot, and it was split into two parts. Where the the morning session was at um at a a, a junior college in their gymnasium with uh, wrestlers having meet and greets. And that's where Lou was and several other, you know, stars and legends from the past. And then that, that night uh, at, uh, at there was actual show with a full slate of matches that mostly consisted of uh, a tag team tournament for at the time, vacant NWA world tag team titles, which I think if I remember right, the eventual winners of that tournament was, uh, Team Triple X, which was Curtis Thompson, if you remember him from the uh, uh, the Patriots and WCW Firebreaker Chip, oh, okay. um, and Brad Anderson, uh, which is the snot nosed kid, as Cully referred to him in that infamous promo. He's he's, he's only son. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That Brad was the snot-nosed kid that got totally punched by Ole. That's Brad, and uh, that was the team. They they they, uh, they, they won eventually, uh, but my partner and I were part of the tournament. It was it was uh, I remember eight or I think it was an eight-team tournament or twelve-team tournament. We were one of the one of the teams in the tournament. So before the show, a lot of the guys uh, that were wrestling on the show, we went and mingled with these old timers beforehand, and Lou was one of them. And um, I can't remember if it was it was either Susan Green or George South that you know the, the famous. Crockett job guy who, who, you know, I think most of us should probably know who George South is, at least by name. Right. Um, mm-hmm. George trained my part, trained my tag team partner, he introduced us to Lou. I think it might've been George. And I, and I, cause I think I mean, I remember asking him, can you introduce me to, to Mr. Thez? And he goes, Oh, of course, of course. And he went over and, and it was Lou Thez was sitting there with another old timer that has passed away. That was from here in this part of the state. Uh, helped me out. And I started named Buck Forrester he used to wrestle under a mask as a, as, as a scorpion. And uh, he was sitting there, and Luthez and Nelson Royal, who I thought the world of and knew Nelson well, um, former NWA junior heavyweight champion, uh, and uh, Tim Woods, Mr. Wrestling 2, or Wrestling 1, I'm sorry. And um, they were just sitting there talking. I like to talk, but I was real quiet listening to those four guys. <laughs> <You talk about laughs> he, and just telling these stories, and George interrupted them but, you know, politely and introduced us and Mr. Thez stood up and he, I mean, this man was in his seventies at this point. And if you look at the picture, you'll see, he, I mean, call, you know, the, I know you've seen the picture, Seth, right? Looks still looks sharp in a suit though, even though he's in his seventies, doesn't he? I mm-hmm. mean, every, every, and, but in cauliflowered ears and just grizzled hands, his knuckles are, and just gave me a handshake like a bear. And he was like, it's so nice to meet you young man. And he said, I, and, and he was talking to both of us, and he, he, I understand you're in this tournament tonight. We're like, yes, sir, yes, sir. And he said, I have to ask both of you, do either one of you have an amateur wrestling background? <laughs> <laughs> and, and both of us told him, no, unfortunately, we don't. And he looked a little disappointed. And my partner said, if it's any consolation, though, Mr. Thez, I am a black belt in Taekwondo, and I run my own dojo, and, 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 and Crazy Train here is a black belt in Judo. He perked up when he heard that. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, well, that is so good. I'm glad to know there's some guys left in this business that can take care of themselves. He goes, you guys have a great match. It was an honor to meet you. I'm being told by Lou Thez it was an honor to meet me. I was, I was speechless. <laughs> It's like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I can now retire. You know, I mean, but it was so funny because of his era where, like we said, you had, if people didn't want to do business, you had to do business for them. 
He was so upset that we did not have an am- a legitimate amateur wrestling background. But when he heard we did have somewhat of a shoot background, he perked right back up. So <laughs> I just think that's a great story. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> All right. Th- th- that's going to wind up this episode of Classic Wrestling Memories. And let's train you. There's anything else you wanted to talk about as far as the uh, the, nope. you know, the early days at Capitol and, and WWWF? No, I, I, would, I, would, I would just once again, for what it's worth, I know it's on YouTube. I believe it's called uh, Chicago Wrestling History is the name of the channel. I might be wrong there. But put in the Pat O'Connor uh, uh, Buddy Rogers world title match from 1961. Anybody who considers themselves a fan of old time wrestling and historical wrestling wants to see what kind of led to this split. They need to see that match. I just, it's, it's, it's to me, it is right up there with, like you said, Hogan and Sheik or Sting and Flair at the first, at the first clash, those kind of, ma- it's one of those type of matches. You need to see it. It's that important. I'm sure you would agree with that. Yeah. And if that search does not work, uh, I would recommend the search of, uh, I'm, I'm queuing up my YouTube page here, uh, Chicago Film Archives. That, that's that it. May, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah that, that, that search is probably, because that's got a lot of those Comiskey Park uh, matches that we talked about before. Incredible uh, so, match for its time, and like you said, the historic promo at the end. To a nicer guy, it couldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. All right, that's going to wrap up this episode, episode 10 of Classic Wrestling Memories, where we talked... The formation of Capital Wrestling, and stay tuned. We got a lot of stuff in store. The Facebook page is at A1 Wrestling. The Twitter is at A1W Podcast. The website is ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. That's really where you can go to subscribe and make sure you don't miss an episode. And Train, if anybody wants to get in touch with you as far as your thoughts on all things wrestling, uh, what is your Twitter? It is at CrazyTrain underscore JV. And I can be reached at A1W Podcast or uh, the the sister Twitter at Geekville Radio. And my email is Seth at A1-Wrestling.com. This has been Classic Wrestling Memories. And we hope you appreciate the memories. And we will talk to you folks again later. Hold on. I, I can do better than that. Uh, I'm telling you, you need, to come up with, you need to come up with some kind of catchphrase like I got for, uh, 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 for examining the dead. Yeah, like you're, see you're, the matches or, or stay tuned till next next week yeah, or something like that. Yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right. This has been Classic Wrestling Memories, and may the best memories be with you. How does that sound? Works for me. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the A1-Wrestling.com podcast family and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com and at A1-Wrestling.com. The views expressed by the hosts and guests are purely their own and do not reflect the views of A1-Wrestling.com, any of its affiliates, or sponsors. Some media used in ClassicWrestlingMemories.com is the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.